Hello and welcome back to Join the Conversation. I'm George Christopher Thomas, your radio talk show host and podcaster, and we are broadcasting and coming at you from the University of Alaska Fairbanks in College, Alaska. So now I invite you to sit back and enjoy the next interview with Professor Brian Kahn. Professor Kahn is a journalist covering climate change. We talk about wildfires in Texas. We talk about Crater Lake, the deepest lake in the United States of America, up there in Oregon. We discuss anthropology and photography, the causes and impacts of climate crises, and how to prepare society, and the the Kyoto Protocol, as well as the Port of San Luis. So, what is this show, Join the Conversation, you ask? Well... In the era of fake news and neo-yellow journalism, this podcast focuses on using academic insight and peer-reviewed understandings to get the real story out there. By basing the conversation in a college atmosphere, the focus is a combination of learning and accuracy that lays down the foundation for comprehending complex issues and concepts. Our host, which is me, invites you to join the conversation by listening as we bring in a cadre of guests from all over America and the world. This idea of peer-reviewed academia, meeting media in real time, is the newest concept in journalism, so on with the show. On our 13th show is Brian Kahn. The interview is about 45 minutes. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, non-binary earthlings, all our listeners out there, thank you once again for tuning in to KSUA 91.5 FM, our college radio station here in Fairbanks, Alaska, here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. We have a very special guest with us today. Uh, Brian Kahn is joining us from New York City. Did I pronounce your last name right? You got it just right. Perfect. All right, Brian Kahn is a journalist covering climate change, and we are going to do a deep dive on all of the latest and greatest stories. So, uh, sir, thank you from uh, thank you for joining us from uh, Gotham City, from the Big Apple. I am so happy to be here. Um, I, maybe I think I wish I was there. Actually, as much as I love New York, uh, I'm kind of ready for a little little quieter life. Um, and Fairbanks is like a good spot to be. Well, maybe a dry cabin in the Arctic would uh, get you enough time to finish a James Michener novel. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's what I need. I definitely, you know, it's got to be one or the other, either like get me out in the woods or I'll just do the city thing and we'll we'll make it work. That's fantastic. So, sir, you uh, are a journalist by trade. You're a journalist uh, by academic training. um, And you currently are the managing editor at Earther. What is Earther? Oh, well, hold on. We have to, I clearly need to update my bio somewhere because I have recently started a new job. Um, so I can, t- so I was managing out of Earth until okay. extremely what are you doing? recently. What are you doing today? Today, at this exact moment, um, I am the editor, the climate editor at a place called Protocol, which is a climate and technology site. Um, so we, basically, well, sorry, it's a technology site that I wanted to be a climate and technology site. That's my dream. Uh, but it's a technology site, and they were like, you know, we should be covering climate probably. And so they hired me to come and start their climate section. And so that is uh, that is where I'm at today, which is uh, exciting and a little bit different than what, I was, than what I've done before. I'm not a technology guy at all. So <laughs> I'm learning about that on the fly. Well, so getting into that, the technology of uh, 
is going to save us from climate change. I mean, we truly have to transition to a renewable resource economy. Isn't that kind of like the big elephant in the room that we should just start talking about? I mean, yeah, like we definitely need to make that transition. I think that, you know, what's important for us, at least what's important to me to think about as a journalist, though, is, you know, how does that impact society? Um, certainly, we know we need these technologies. We know we have, you know, a number of things like wind energy and solar energy where we can do that. We can make that transition happen. But, you know, deciding what that looks like from a societal standpoint and, you know, who builds it, where it gets built how we make sure everyone has access to clean energy and electric vehicles and stuff like that's a whole other sort of it's a can of worms it's a whole other ball game whatever analogy you want to say but there's a lot of ways to sort of there's a lot of nuance to that discussion beyond just like we got to make the transition happen it's how do we make that transition happen in a way that's fair to everyone so systemically like looking at the system of our world uh, society it goes back to um the industrial revolution and when we started uh, industrializing doesn't it that's when we were went from polluting like on caveman level with uh, fires in front of the cave to a whole new level where uh, i mean not to get scientific but like the anthropocene we as humans can change the world but we're we're just changing it in a bad way yeah well yeah we changed our lives in a good way right in some ways right like or we get it, to hear started some good things yeah like we're chatting on Zoom. So like that certainly is nice, right? But it, there are the unintended consequences that come with that technological advancement. And that is, yeah, you know, burning coal, then burning gas um, and other fossil fuels for power and energy and whatever it might be. That is, you know, that got us these modern lives and great things we have, but it also means that we've altered the climate ways that are now becoming dangerous and actually a threat to the modern things that we enjoy, um, whether it's cities that are on the coast, whether it's, um, you know, just having the internet. I mean, the internet is actually really affected by civil rights. There's tons of ways in which climate change is now kind of coming back to bite all the things that we, uh, <laughs> that make modern life what it is. So let's, you know, for the sake of argument, we're not going to be mad at, you know, four or five generations ago that we're just trying to heat their homes, you know, in Amherst, Massachusetts or wherever. But mm -hmm. the um, transition now to, uh, getting off fossil fuels, looking at the politics of it, is, is the oil industry just so, they have their hooks in the Republicans so much that we just, we, we also have to get off the addiction to, you know, oil money if we're Republicans or, I mean, there's a lot of politics involved here too. It, it, it'd be easier to wave a magic wand, but you don't, they don't have one in Washington. Sadly, they don't. If anyone finds one and they want to send it, though, please send it to where it needs to go so we can get that done. Um, but yeah, it does, you know, I think it really speaks to, to what you're saying. The fossil fuel industry has spent decades building this political power. And what they've done is, you know, first it's by, you know, sowing doubt and denying the climate science, making this an issue where, you know, by delaying action when we could have done it in sort of this more, you know, orderly, slow process. Um, by delaying action, they made a lot more profits, they became bigger, they became more entrenched. Those interests now um, really kind of like, they still hold the fate for us. And they've put us in this position now where we do have to make this transition rapid. We had started years ago, pace of change would have been a lot easier. Now it's like breakneck pace is what we need. And you know, these industries, fossil industry, it doesn't deny climate change anymore, or at least they don't outwardly do that. They say we need to transition to you know zero, or I guess their thing is low carbon energy. Um, the reality is we, get to, we need to get to no carbon energy very fast. And so there still is this impediment though, because they are kind of 
you know, these big companies want to wring the last few drops out of last few profits out of the drops of oil in the ground that they can. And so that means that we're still stuck in this really fraught political place where there is a groundswell of public support to change course. Americans don't want to do this anymore. They want to stop climate change. It's just, that's how it is. And there are more people alarmed about climate change than ever, according to numerous studies that come out of this group at Yale. Um, so we know that, but we also know that politically, you know, we need the votes in the Senate and the Senate has a slightly different opinion, I guess, on how alarmed they should be. And specifically a handful of senators are the ones that are kind of pulling up a lot of action right now. So that's but the possible, that's the, the possible industry's influence on our politics. So let's just say, uh, let's take one of the 100 senators, for example, let's call Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Let's just use him <laughs> as an example. So okay. in order for him to retain his Senate seat, though, in order for him to be sitting, uh, you know, and being in the re arena to begin with, he has to appease the constituency of the uh, coal and uh, the, the, you know, cut off the top of the mountain miners. So it is it a I mean, is it just one person can hijack the whole thing like this? I mean, uh, it seems like uh, our government should be able to function a little bit better. I mean, James <laughs> Madison, would he, would he be mad at us or proud of us for the obstruction? I mean, I think that, you know, it, so it's a couple of things. I mean, one, you know, Joe Manchin also has his own family fortune tied to the coal industry. Like that's a source of wealth for him, as well as, you know, people in West Virginia. And also, just on the Joe Manchin note for a second, the United Mine Workers of America, which is the union that represents coal miners, is on board for a just transition. They want to transition out of the industry because they recognize the economics is turning against it, and they know that eventually, you know, we're going to need we're going to need to stop burning coal at the rates that we do now um, if we want to have a sort of livable climate. The real problem is that these major companies are helping still fund Joe Manchin's campaign, and you know, big. Again, like oil and gas companies like Exxon and BP, um, Chevron, like they're donating to Joe Manchin as well. And so when it comes down to it, this isn't necessarily Joe Manchin standing up for workers per se. It's Joe Manchin standing up for the folks that are, you know, the bosses that are trying to make lots of money off of this while they still can. Um, so I think that's one thing to like note. The other thing is like, you know, certainly he is the public face of opposition, right? Because Democrats need him if they want to pass a reconciliation bill. But I think it's also worth noting that like, there are 50 Republicans. One of them could cross party lines and say, like, all right, like, I agree with the need for a clean energy standard or whatever it might be. And the fact that none of them are doesn't let them off the hook. Um, you know, we kind of take it for granted that no Republican is going to support sweeping climate legislation. But I do think it's worth stepping back for a second and saying that, you know, yeah, Joe Manchin is a problem in this case if we really care about having a, you know, decent shot at preserving a habitable climate. But there are 50 other folks and, you know, men and women in the Senate who could be one of them could just step across party lines and do it and they're not. And so I think it speaks to the fact that, yeah, we have a system, we have a systemic problem that um, is really blocking action that we need and really blocking popular will as well. When did it become politicized? Like when did it become a Republican oil climate denier versus, you know, left-leaning tree hugging Dem that, uh, you, you know, but still to hug the tree drove their car that, uh, he runs on gas to get to the tree to hug it. You know, I mean, there, there, there must be a kind of a somewhere in between that, like, why, why can't the green energy industry be the new uh, engine of capitalism instead of it being the oil industry? What if you know America's love of making money and you know Gordon Gecko greed is good? But if 
you went for that, but in recycling, you know, why, why can't we just change the trajectory a little bit, just tweak it? Well, I mean, that's a, it's a good question. It's a question if even that's the right route to go. I mean, maybe it is, maybe that's where we end up. I think the science kind of that we've seen out of a lot of these major reports shows us that it's a systemic change that has to happen, not just to like, you know, clean up capitalism's footprint, but that the root of this in a lot of ways is the idea of infinite growth and constant relying on natural resources to build that, that wealth. And so, you know, the problem with the, why can't we just swap in one for the other? I mean, there are a few, some of them are technical, like we don't have all the wind turbines that we need built right now to make the, like, to flip the switch, right? Like it takes a while to do that. That's not to say that we couldn't do that. Like we need to build it out. And that's a huge engine for, I mean, job creation. It can create wealth. Like there are great things that could happen there. Um, but you have these entrenched interests that are so, you know, still very powerful. The fossil fuel industry kind of had its heyday earlier this century. Like it was at its peak of power. Those companies like Exxon and Chevron are not as big as they once were. They're not quite as powerful as they once were, but they're still, you know, multi-billion dollar companies with a lot of weight to throw around. And so, you know, when you have those entrenched interests and they will be the losers in this fight at the end of the day, if they don't change, like maybe they become clean energy companies. It seems unlikely the way that they're developing right now. And so they will eventually be losers, right? And they don't want to give up that entrenched power. And so that's where we're kind of running into this sort of, I guess, loggerheads, right? Like they still have the power. The green energy industry is on the rise, but it isn't quite there yet. And so you're not getting that, you know, it's it's still in some ways a David versus Goliath story of these two kinds of, uh, you know, these, I guess, the current energy system and the future one that we need. And that's where I think we're running into this problem. So what I found just from the work that I'm doing as a climate scholar is a, in the environmental movement, not having studied it on an academic level, I, I, my prior thinking was, you know, this is going to be well organized. Uh, these people are going to be able to, you know, take down big oil. And then from what I've seen is it's very like, uh, it, you know, fractured or everyone's working on their one or two issues. And there's not a good amount of organization or, um, you know, a political clout in DC, you know, versus the oil industry. I mean, the oil industry and the money they give to campaigns compared to like, you know, the Greenpeace pack or whoever it is. I mean, that, that's a big discrepancy. Yeah, I mean, the finances are simply not there when you're, uh, you know, Exxon, which is, like I said, they have, you know, a market cap of tens of hundreds of billions of dollars. That's a huge company with a lot of money to throw around. And so for them, you know, when their business relies on essentially making sure that they muck up the system enough that they can keep on drilling for oil and gas, then, you know, they're able to like put that money where they need to. And they know very well where to target that money. I think for environmental groups though, that level of coordination and certainly that level of finance is not available to them. And so you do end up running into like these, again, mismatches of scale where the oil industry may have, you know, a lot less people power behind it, but it has a lot more financial power. And so that's, you know, that's served that tension. It's not just the money side, but the people side. And right now the money side is frankly, I mean, it's winning um, or certainly it's, it's keeping things at the status quo, unfortunately, which is not where we need to be. So uh, I saw you wrote about uh, AOC and uh, I want to talk about the Green New Deal. Um, is that, is the reason that that's not going to get through is it's too far to the left, the way that it's written, or is that just the uh, the politics of it? Is that just them po uh, politicizing it so it doesn't go through? I mean, is the Green New Deal like FDR's new Work Progress Administration? Is it like WPA left-leaning stuff, or 
is there some chamber of commerce stuff in there too, where both parties could really pass it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, with the Green New Deal, I think what's important to acknowledge with it is that, you know, it's viewed on a political spectrum. And obviously, like, it is political, like the solutions it espouses are political. But I think for me, especially as a journalist, is looking at, you know, okay, like, yes, like, this will be decided in the arena of politics. But, you know, what does this proposal actually do for the climate? Like, and we can look at that scientifically, like we can say, does this decarbonize the system at the rate that's fast enough? Is it a just transition that won't leave you know, miners behind that won't hurt indigenous communities. You know, is this the right, are these the steps we need to take? And I think when you look at the Green New Deal, what it is, is it's a blueprint that is in line with that science. So yes, the proposals are, you know, like quote unquote, left-wing proposals, but they're proposals that line up with the science. And so I think that that's kind of like this, that is one of the things that is really challenging about these issues and about the Green New Deal in particular, is that this is like what we need to do, frankly. Like, that is the blueprint that says, yes, like here's the roadmap or, you know, here's the outline of, I think I've made way too many analogies with this one, but essentially it shows, it takes the science and it translates it into the start of a policy framework. And that is like where we should be starting. It's like, does this meet the scale at the moment? When did it become politicized? Like when did the Republicans all get in <laughs> one room and say, okay, we have to deny everything. And they're, I mean, it, do you put them in the same category as like the people that think the earth is still flat? I mean, because <laughs> there were GOPers, uh, uh, you know, a few decades ago that agreed with the science. I mean, why does the scientists and the science of climate change always go Democrat and uh, climate deniers are always Republicans? Like, when did it become politicized? 1997? Yeah, I mean, that's when, you know, so that like 1997 is when the Kyoto Protocol was signed. That was the first like kind of international climate agreement to limit greenhouse gases. It was not effective, but it was essentially, I mean, it didn't garner any support in the US, um, you know, in the Senate. So it didn't, it never became law. Um, it never became a, law, a binding treaty for the US, anyways. Um, but that was, you know, the late 90s are when things really started to split. Like there are these, there's this famous video of Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich, uh, Newt Gingrich sitting around, they're talking about climate change and like, it's like a serious, like there's full theories about it. And, you know, you fast forward to now and that's just not the way it is um, at all. And so that's when you start to see the schism, I think, happen. And, you know, why did it happen? I mean, I think some of it is the challenge of what the solutions, when we look at climate change, you know, what are they actually? And what they tend to be is a restructuring of society around shared resources, about people coming together, building community there. I mean, it's not that you can't have these individual friendly solutions to climate like electric vehicles, but a lot of this is like build more public transit. So you reduce carbon emissions as fast as possible. That's the most efficient way to get around. Um, or it's, you know, community sort of centered like, uh, you know, microgrids and things like that, which again, like, are, it's not that you can't put rooftop solar on, but they require a degree of societal investment um, to really make these systems work. And that is anathema to what has become the sort of conservative worldview of like hyper-individualism and like what I want to do is all that matters. Um, you know, it's essentially like this, I don't want to say a negation of what society is, but it's a very like, yes, sure, we live in a society, but what really matters above all else is the power to individually do whatever I want. And that climate change, you know, it's like I said, some of the solutions will allow us to do that. And I have the utmost faith that we will still live free and healthy and happy lives um, if once we transition to clean energy. But some of the things to get the ball rolling require government investment. They require, you know, strong structural policies, regulations that take down or that make it less economical to burn fossil fuels in the first place 
and promote renewables and that kind of stuff is anathema to I think the Republican project of you know just hyper individualism and making sure that the free market decides. Um, but frankly, like all the research points to the fact that the free market is not going to fix climate change, and certainly all of history to this point has shown that as well, given the fact that we've had this wonderful free market economy for decades, we've known about the problem for decades, and emissions hit a record high last year. So uh, transitioning that to international law, you're in New York City, the UN's right there. How strong is the international law when it comes to climate change? I mean, if, you know, the um, United States of America doesn't uh, accept, you know, like uh, the law of the seas, the UN law of the seas, Uniclose. Mm -hmm. So uh, you right there, that seems like a, I mean, he gets stalled in the Senate every time a few Republicans, uh, you know, say we're not going to let um, some international body tell America what to do. But uh, how strong is international law when it comes to combating climate change? This is a brand new field, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, we've morning. seen it's morning. Time for this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've seen like some efforts, right? Like they're the big world's main climate agreement is the Paris Agreement, but that agreement is non-binding and it's non-binding because we saw what happened with this agreement in the 90s, the Kyoto Protocol, where the US didn't ratify it. And so that was basically the reason why the Paris Agreement became non-binding. It, it was the only way to get the US to sign on to the agreement because the world was like, it's never going to pass the Senate if we make it binding. So, you know, when we look at what the Paris Agreement is, like, it's a really nice, ambitious, it's ambitious as far as an agreement goes, and as far as a plan goes. As far as concrete actions though, I mean, there's no accountability mechanisms really, and there's no way to make sure that countries sort of live up to their ideals of what their pledges are. And that's, I think, you know, that is the ultimate challenge here is like, you wanna give countries the leeway to find the best pathway forward for each of them to do this, um, you know, to bring down emissions at the scale that we need to in the timetables, ideally that we need to, but certainly like understand that every country might have different needs. But the problem is when it's not binding, you don't, there's no way to enforce that. And so again, like we've seen the world say like, yes, we're gonna like, we're gonna get to net zero emissions by 2050. Yes, like these are, are sort of our goals that we're working towards, but without having any kind of like enforcement mechanism, there's not really a lot behind those promises. And certainly, like I said, like we haven't seen emissions go down yet. They just kind of kept going up. And so that needs to change. Like that trajectory has to change at some point, but without a push to do it, it's really hard to get, you know, individual countries, let alone the entire planet, pulling in the same direction. So that's interesting. Like, truly, uh, in international relations and international law, there it, it, it's chaos. I mean, it's not chaos. It just there is no, uh, you know, like aliens on the moon enforcing the laws. Like, it really, <laughs> America does what America wants. China does what China wants. The UK has always done what they want. Uh, France is doing French things, you know. So, like, the how strong is the UN? Is the UN just like for lip service? I mean, do they have any teeth at all? I mean, it depends. It's like, it, there's this argument that the UN can kind of, and the secretary general can use that as a bully pulpit to basically tell countries like, get your act together. Um, and there is, I guess, there is some value in that. I don't want to negate the value of having that. Um, it's better than nothing. But the problem, I mean, one of the great one of the good and bad things about the UN is that it takes, especially on climate, is it takes consensus to get there. And there are, you know, 180 some odd countries in the world. And what's great about that is that, you know, at the UN climate talks, every country gets one vote. So it's, you know, the US gets the same number of votes as Thailand, as Vanuatu, as, you know, Fiji. 
so that's a really powerful thing because it gives these smaller countries actually a lot of leverage where they're, you know, they can stand up from the moral high ground and say like, hey, like, you know, if you're Vanuatu, it's a small island nation, low line, going to be going underwater. Um, well, I guess it's not. They have volcanoes. So it's a little bit higher, but like, you know, a lot of their land will be lost to climate change. And so for them, they can say, look, look, like, this is our future. Like, your future's in our hands and we're not going to stand up for some weak agreement. Um, so where else can you get that? You can't. The UN is the spot. And so there's a lot of value in that. But, you know, at the end of the day, what drives these agreements ends up being usually the big players. Um, they can be shamed by a small island nation like Vanuatu. But at the end of the day, you know, the last climate talks just happened in November. The US, China, India, the EU, like those are the big players. They kind of like did a little behind the scenes, like handshake agreement. And that's how we ended up with the, you know, what came out of those talks, the Glasgow Pact. Um, so it's not to say that, you know, they weren't influenced by the smaller players, but it's really, uh, the dynamic is, you know, it's a challenging dynamic. And so you could argue that there's a lot of good that comes out of those talks. And there's a lot of like, I mean, it is in some ways democratic, but also because of that, I mean, you still have the big players. And then because you need consensus from all these countries in the world, everything will inherently move a little slower than you than we need it to at this point. Because, you know, while Vanuatu may say, hey, we're gonna lose some of our islands, silverized Saudi Arabia may say, well, hey, our entire economy runs on oil. So you can't just transition away from that. And that's where you end up with this kind of tension where we don't get pulled far enough in the direction we need to. Um, but we do get at least some stuff done. So uh, looking at the war in Ukraine with Russia, uh, how does that play out with the Security Council? So any one of the five can veto any one of the other four's resolutions or whatever. Sometimes that just becomes like a stalemate. They just stymie each other and nothing gets done. How is the war in Ukraine and Russia playing out at the UN right now? I mean, that one's probably a little above my pay grade in terms of how it's playing at the Security Council, but I will tell you that like, something I find interesting or something that we'll have an interesting time looking at is how does it play out in like the climate space in terms of clean energy? Because, sure. you know, all of a sudden Europe is like, wait, we rely on Russian natural gas. We, that's how we basically keep the lights on and keep houses warm across Europe and the UK. And so there's a sudden need to, there's a sudden realization like, oh, we, we should probably not do that. Um, and there's this push to transition away given what we've seen with both gas prices due to the conflict. And also with the fact that, you know, there's this threat looming over Europe that Russia could just cut off the gas supply if it needed, if it wanted to, um, if there was an escalation. Um, so there's this kind of interesting tension there. I think there's also this interesting tension in terms of the risk, like what we know or how the world scientists think about climate change. Like there are these scenarios they run where they envision, you know, if the world develops this way, what happens to the climate? And there's this one scenario that I'm super fascinated by that's included in a lot of big reports that looks at what happens if the world fractures apart. Instead of coming together to solve the problem, we see, you know, increased conflict and competition over resources or over territory, things like that, which is what we're looking at right now with Russia and Ukraine and in other parts of the world as well. Um, and in that scenario, bad things happen. Technology doesn't get, clean energy technology doesn't get transferred. You know, we don't end up having equitable sharing of resources. And so we burn more fossil fuels and emissions rise. And, you know, looking at what's happening with the war in Ukraine, on the one hand, there's this push to like get Europe off of Russian gas, but there's also this push like the Biden administration just announced that it's going to release a bunch of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, and so 
we do see fossil fuel interests sort of gaining a bigger toehold as we try to figure out what to do about this conflict. And I do worry that that future, you know, it looks familiar and we have to figure out how do we kind of mitigate, how do we not get on that track because we know the result is not pretty for the climate. So is the, do, you, do you think that this is a war over oil? I mean, is this, a, you know, Putin uh, trying to reestablish the, you know, the old Russian uh, monarchy of before and their uh, boundaries and selling oil to Europe versus, I mean, it's, it's one thing to say you're an environmentalist, but the way you're acting is a different thing. And then what now America can sell oil to Europe instead? I mean, it seems like this is a war over oil. If you boil it down, it's not, it could be about NATO coming that close to Eastern Europe, which in the 90s, America said we weren't going to do. And then we went back on that and like, you know, we were just like, anyone want to be in NATO? We got, you know, like, come on, let's have a big party. <laughs> uh, so it could be about that. But do you think it's a war over natural resources? Truly? I mean, I don't know if it's a war about natural resources, but it's impossible for us not to like, it's impossible to take that part out of the equation just because of the way that our economies are connected. Um, and especially given the reliance of European countries on Russian oil and gas. I mean, that is it, that is inherently, you know, that that relationship means that like oil and gas can become a weapon. It's not necessarily, you know, a, a tank or a fighter jet, right? But it, it becomes a, a sort of an economic weapon to be wielded both by Europe or sorry, by Russia, but also I mean certainly by the US to say, hey, we can step in and provide this if Russia cuts you off. Um, and so it's not like, yeah, I don't think the war necessarily is over natural resources, but I think it's impossible to like disentangle them as a form of warfare um, or as sort of a proxy war that we could see break out. Um, and certainly, you know, you look at oil prices or you look at even the prices of, you know, minerals we need for the clean energy transition, like cobalt and nickel, like they have spiked like crazy in part due to this conflict showing that, you know, again, when we think about needing technology to be transferred and shared equitably, when you have this conflict, it creates a lot of strange market forces that can't be properly accounted for and frankly, you know, could slow down the transition that we need to have happen. And it's certainly the oil companies win no matter what, because the price of oil is uh, skyrocketed. And uh, even here in Alaska, the, the state legislature, who gets 85, 90% of the state revenue comes from oil, they had mm -hmm. to take a week off just to think about what they would spend all the additional revenue on. So they had like a, <laughs> a whole week uh, of daydreaming and, you know, pipe dreaming, whatever you want to call it. But it, no matter what, the oil companies are getting paid in this war. Is it like daddy warbucks of the olden days? Yeah, I mean, they're definitely, you know, a lot of, like all these oil companies made a, a big show. And I mean, rightfully, like, it's not, I, not that I don't mean to commend them, but like, of stopping the Russian cyber business, um, which I think, you know, that's the bare minimum that they can do, right? But yes, they are now going to be playing record profits. And we are looking at like extreme gas prices at the pump. And those things are, I guess, you know, inherently linked and also feel like a bit of a mismatch where if you're, I don't own a car, but if you own a car or if you own anything that runs on, you know, where you need to go to the gas station to fill up, and you're looking at the prices. Um, you know, I have a friend in California that said they're up to around seven dollars near her in LA. I can only imagine what they are in Fairbanks right now. But if you look at that and you look at Exxon getting record profits and returning to shareholders, you're like, hmm, like, what does that tell us about some priorities here? And 
yeah, raises some interesting questions if you're a, a person that relies on, you know, getting around to, you know, what is Exxon, what, what exactly are they doing? And is this the right, is this the way that we want to kind of live our lives from here on out? Certainly. Well, let's uh, transition to like a more fun topic just for a second, besides the oh, end of the wor World War Three, uh, the oil industries running uh, Republican politics, all that. Um, you used to be an educator at the deepest lake in the United States of America at Crater Lake. I love Crater Lake. I have gone to Crater Lake numerous times as a kid. My family would go up to uh, South Oregon um, for vacation. Uh, I've been there. We've watched the sunrise at the top. Now, how is someone from New York City uh, giving tours at Crater Lake? Like, how does that happen? <laughs> Well, it's the other way around. I was like, how did someone that was giving tours at Crater Lake end up in New York? That's like a, this is a bad life choice. <laughs> kind of uh, diametrically opposed. I mean, you don't, it, when I think of Crater Lake, I don't think of Times Square. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. I don't either. And I kind of miss that a lot. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, it's funny. Like, I'd always wanted to be a park ranger. I just, that was like a dream of mine. And you I had the uniform and the big hat? Yeah, I got the hat sitting in my closet still. Where's I loved it. Yeah, it was great. Um, I had always wanted to do it. I, you know, even though I grew up, I studied in New York, I grew up out near Boston and I didn't want to be a, I loved where I grew up, but like my best thing was my mom would take us away for a weekend every fall to the White Mountains. So we just drive up to mountains in New Hampshire and like spend a weekend and, you know, hike and see foliage and throw rocks in the river and things like that. And that was always just like my favorite thing in life. And so, yeah, I was like, well, how do I make that like more of a less of like a weekend a year and more of a, a life thing? And so that's how I ended up at Crater Lake. Um, I said I want to be a park ranger. They hired me and it was just a perfect fit. Um, you know, living 60 miles from the nearest grocery store and giving boat tours and you know, I'd wake up and watch the sunrise myself some days. And yeah, I loved it up there. And then some, for some reason decided coming to New York to study was a good idea for a year. And unfortunately, many years later, I have yet to leave. <laughs> well, you, it's, you know, the uh, Shakespeare Festival in Ashland is uh, fun and all, but uh, there is stuff happening in New York City. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your education. You got your undergrad uh, degree from Hampshire College in Amherst in anthropology and photography. Um, what is that? Just like taking pictures of cave paintings or what, <laughs> what is the combo there? The combo there was I actually, so I got, I took a year off during my undergrad um, to sort of get my, my head on straight slash uh, I chased a girl to New Mexico, uh, which was a good life choice uh, for many reasons, even though we obviously did not end up together. You have but, a lot of turquoise next to your park ranger hat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just got a pile of it. No, but it was like, I, you know, it really stuck with me, like being out there, it was the first time I'd ever lived, um, you know, in the desert or seen that kind of environment. I was like, this is incredible. So I decided to go back and do my thesis work there, um, studying, looking at cultural tourism and how folks kind of, you know, consume what they imagine to be indigenous culture in that region. Um, and so, yeah, my work was going around looking at like tourist shops and looking at the tchotchkes they're selling and seeing what, uh, what sort of themes emerge from that and photographing that uh, lots of cocoa pelly, but also lots of weird stuff, you know, like totem poles, which is not like a Southwest thing at all. Like it's just, you know, people have a very- uh, Alaskan, that's the Klingit in the, right by Juneau and right in that area. Yeah, it's very strange to see like what would pass as like a, you know, 
in the Southwest, like, you know, there's a very specific culture. I mean, there are specific cultures, plural, down there for all the Pueblos and tribes and all that. And but like, you know, you end up in these tourist shops and it's just like, how can you squish every kind of imagined thing that like could possibly be, you know, Native American into like a thousand or whatever square feet. And so, yeah, you'd get like all sorts of stuff. I mean, there are things from like uh, North Carolina, like they were from a tribe in North Carolina. And it's just like, why is this being sold here when you have this, you know, I was in Taos, New Mexico, so Taos published just up the road. And it's like, why would you not be highlighting the incredible artisans that are there? Um, you know, some shops did, but it was very interesting. So that's how my, so long story short, my thesis ended up being like spending a lot of time in tourist shops and talking to people and figuring out like, what is, what are you imagining here um, versus what is reality in this place? Um, they were very different things. <laughs> and then you got your master's degree from Columbia in New York City in climate and society. And then you find yourself teaching those classes now. You're a professor at Columbia. Um, teaching the very curriculum you studied, um, in one sentence, just sum up the entire master's degree. Uh, the world needs to be changed off of uh, oil. Uh, everyone, kumbaya, green energy. Like, what? What's the big theme here? Uh, the big theme is that we know that climate influences society and vice versa, and so we need to understand those connections and figure out how to leverage them so that the climate, so we have a safer climate in the future. And so we also have a safer society in the future. That's the one sentence version. And then you studied weather. Do you think that the, the weather is getting more extreme? I mean, I love weather. Uh, I, uh, where I live in California, um, when I'm, uh, you know, at home, we were right by the, uh, the, um, the harbor. And then I saw you wrote about tsunamis, the tsunami thing. And, and mm -hmm. I was actually out on a run when the tsunami hit. And you could tell that something was different. It wasn't that big uh, in Ventura, but uh, where it was the biggest in your article, you write the tsunamis in the Pacific from the volcano exploding was in Port San Luis. And the thing I noticed before was all the animals were acting different, like the normal seabirds, mm. the norm everything was different and strange. And then when I learned that it was the tsunami, then it all made sense. But just being out there on the run, like just doing a 5k by the harbor like i think the animals know more than humans sometimes yeah for sure i mean i definitely i mean you know they're more in touch right with uh, what's going on in the natural birds, world the seabirds are smarter than a lot of the people i encounter at work <laughs> yeah that sounds about right actually <laughs> <laughs> so the uh the climate and society master's degree do you think that your love of weather your love of uh climate came from spending time in Oregon or I mean from when your mom took you up to the White Mountains I mean there's a love of the environment that uh, it goes throughout your CV yeah I mean I think for me you know what drew me to go back to studying get my master's was the fact that you know Crater Lake is this incredible lake it's in a caldera inside the top of a volcano or now extinct volcano and the only thing the only way it fills up the only thing that only source of water is snowfall um, and rainfall, but mostly it's snow because that's what it does up there a lot. Um, and so that, like you know, knowing that was the start of the was the start of kind of my journey to think about this. And then knowing that also, like you know, you can see that they've been keeping records up there since it became a park in the early 1910s, um, but reliable records since the 1930s. And you can see that snowpack year over year, decade over decade, has decreased by a lot. And so, what does that mean for the lake? Like you know, we don't know. Like it may mean the lake level goes down a bit. It may mean it becomes less clear. It may mean any number of things. That's an active area of research. 
but knowing that and knowing that something had changed, like that was my first thing where I was like, okay, like what is actually happening at this place and to this resource I care about? And that's why I ended up going back to get my master's. I was like, well, if I want to like help it, I need to know the bigger picture of what's going on here. Um, like, it's not just this little corner of Oregon, it's everywhere. And so how does it all kind of like, how does this little micro, I guess, version of climate change, um, you know, this like little corner of it, how does it connect to the bigger picture and the bigger trends? And that's what, that's what made me, uh, yeah, I want to get a little more education in my life. That is so fun, Brian. I only have you for a few more minutes, but I did want to ask you about enviro justice, environmental justice. Um, it keeps coming up, you know, when you read peer-reviewed articles and in textbooks and whatnot, that the climate change movement is racist. I mean, it, that's a little blunt, but it, it uh, for, you know, going back in time, it has been very white, elitist, uh, high society, you know, something that uh, certain people do so then they can talk at cocktail parties, uh, you know, at Martha's Vineyard about it. Do you think that the climate change movement is racist or it was? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always been a very, so there are aspects of it that have been and there are aspects that still are. I don't mean to like paper over like problems that exist within like environmental organizations or the climate movement generally. Um, but I think historically, like, yeah, it's climate change got painted as an environmental issue, right? And like, you know, I mean, certainly like my story, right? Is That's the story. Like I cared about a natural resource. I worried about it and thus got into climate change. And that route I think has been, you know, a lot of environmental groups sort of latched on to I think that, and that's why it became an environmental issue. But I think the reality is like, this is a, it is an environmental justice issue. It's an economic issue. It's, it's a fill in the blank. It's an everything issue because it touches everything. And I think what's incumbent on, you know, the climate movement and certainly also incumbent on journalists in terms of how we think about covering it is to make sure we're honoring that um, because the people that are most impacted by climate change are, I mean, certainly I was impacted, right? Like by caring about this natural resource, but the people dealing with like the catastrophic impacts are generally communities that do not have a lot of money, do not have a lot of political power, do not have, you know, frankly, a, like they've been marginalized traditionally. And so I think it's really incumbent on the climate movement to welcome those people into the fold and to make sure that we're, you know, we're centering, or we're like, I'm not part of the climate movement, but to make sure that the climate movement is, and certainly as journalists, we're also making sure we're, we're centering, we're listening to those stories and we're telling them because at the end of the day, like if you want to have political change on this issue, it's not going to come, I don't think from, uh, you know, just a few groups like the Sierra Club and the Natural Resources Defense Council, getting their folks out to like, push, you know, for politics. And I don't mean to say that those groups won't play a role. Scientists, uh, yeah. better writing campaign. Yeah, like there's no, I don't mean any shade to those groups. Like I think that like they do have a role to play and they're trying to figure out how they can sort of expand their reach to include other, you know, to include marginalized communities that they've traditionally ignored. But I do think at the end of the day, like, you know, this is a big all of society issue. And if you want to get people out in the streets, you need to listen to people that are outside that traditional space of, you know, environmental movement and think bigger and open your ears to different stories and then make sure that you're, you know, like I said, honoring those people and telling their stories in ways that can hopefully uh, have an impact. And Brian, one last question before uh, you wander off into the, uh, the sunset. Um, I saw that you were uh, like some kind of like elk herder or you were running with the elk. <laughs> is that is that like running with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain? Like what? what what were you doing with 7,000 elk and where was that in Lapland or where were you? <laughs> I was just making new friends, you know, uh, 
Sugar the Elk could be my buddies for for winter. Um, they were very lovely. Uh, no, I was working a, I was working at the National Elk Refuge. It's in Jackson, Wyoming. Um, so it's just south of Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park. And what happens is all the elk come from the highlands in those places and elsewhere. And they basically wintered just outside of Jackson, Wyoming on this refuge. And so my job was to hang out with them, not, uh, you know, one-on-one or listen to their problems or become best friends, but to basically show folks um, these elk on sleigh rides, which was an incredible experience. So we would uh, basically take a sleigh ride tour out to the elk herd that would winter there. And the elk, you know, this has been going on for decades. The elk are totally just like chill about it because they're like, we just want to save energy. This sleigh is not a predator and it's not going to kill us. So as long as you're in the sleigh, the elk are super chill. Um, and yeah, it was my job to basically show folks the elk, tell them about what was going on at the refuge, tell a little bit of the natural history of the place and uh, make sure that they got good photos in the process, which most people did. So a very strange job, uh, but one that I, I do kind of miss some days. <laughs> Well, you're not doing a lot of that uh, in New York. No, unfortunately, there. Uh, I don't think there are any elk in New York. There's not a lot of sleigh, sleigh rides down Broadway. No, unfortunately, but if there was, I would happily hop on one and narrate it. <laughs> well, Brian Kahn, this has been a wonderful interview. We've touched upon international relations. We've touched upon the climate change movement. We've touched upon big oil, politics in DC, the Senate, Crater Lake, uh, sleigh rides. Um, just a, a, a fun uh, interaction. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for coming on the radio show. Uh, for all our listeners out there in Fairbanks, you guys are tuned in to KSUA 91.5 FM, our college radio station here at UAF at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And uh, on behalf of all of us up here, uh, thank you for doing the show, Brian. No, it's my pleasure. I'm glad you're doing it. I'm glad you're talking about these issues too. And uh, the next time I'm in the Big Apple, we'll go over to the uh, UN and uh, pretend like we're greeters. We'll just say hi to everyone going in and out and, uh, and, and tell them the, uh, the truth about it all. It's, it's all based on oil. It sounds like a good plan. I'll uh, definitely see you over there and we'll, uh, we can find some good coffee after too. We'll get a coffee and a Danish. All right. Thank you, sir, for coming on the show and you have a good rest of your afternoon. Thanks. Same to you. Yep. Thank you. You have been listening to Join the Conversation, our radio show and podcast on 91.5 FM KSUA, our college radio station here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I am your host, George Christopher Thomas, and I thank you for tuning in.